Hello, this is Kevin McMullen, Senior Pastor of Independence Christian Center. Thanks for joining us as we break the bread of life today. Our prayer is that your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened by this word. God bless you. Address an issue tonight. The issue I've titled this God's Sovereignty and Our Responsibility. Uh, it's, it's an issue that's crucial and extremely impactful to our worldview, depending on how we think about it. Um, it impacts our spiritual well-being. It impacts our physical, emotional, and financial health. Um, it can mean the difference between having peace and having anxiety in our lives. Uh, one minister has called sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, one of the most harmful and destructive doctrines that's taught in the church today, depending on how it is taught. And that's kind of what I want to address tonight. I think everyone here probably knows Hosea 4.6 by heart. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Isaiah 5.13 also says, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude is parched with thirst. I want to examine our knowledge and hopefully increase our knowledge and our understanding and evaluate what our own beliefs are on this topic. And we may have varying beliefs in this room tonight or listening online. That's okay. Let's examine what, what we believe, see what the scripture says and, and what we come away with. The dictionary defines sovereignty as having supreme power, being free from external controls, and having a fully controlling influence. And I would argue to you that God does in fact have supreme power. There's no one more supreme than Him. There's no God like our God. Amen. He created every single molecule in existence and He holds it together Himself. Colossians 1.17 tells us, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I would also argue with you that uh, God is free from external controls. But we see in Scripture that He does listen to others. We see several instances. Uh, if you were here for the series on the Divine Council that lasted for quite some time, you're very familiar with Psalm 82.1. Uh, taken from the, the ESV, it says, God has taken His place in the Divine Council. God has a Divine Council in Heaven of, of beings that He interacts with. Um, he does not have to do what they say, but he takes their advice. We see that in Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 22, um, where we see this, this divine council seated in heaven, and God is discussing with his, his divine council how they are going to deal with Ahab. And it says one spirit comes to him with an idea, and another spirit comes to him with an idea, and then one spirit comes and says, hey, I have an idea. I will put a false word in, in Ahab's prophet's mouth. And... God says, uh, basically, this is the Jason, very rough paraphrase. I like that idea. Let's do it. Um, so God heard different options. He turned different options down. He heard an option he liked, and he went with it. Could God have come up with that solution on his own? Absolutely. Did God know that that spiritual being was going to present that option? Absolutely. But he still chooses, just like he chooses to interact with us. Uh, I think of Abraham. When God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God argued, or Abraham bargained with God. If you find 50 righteous men, will you spare the city? Yes. 40? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. He could have probably went all the way down to one, but, but Abraham stopped, you know. And God did destroy the city because there was no one righteous in there. They had to take Lot out. And Lot wasn't exactly what you call a righteous man. The, the, the men were coming to, to commit uh, assaults against the angels, and Lot offered up his daughters 
in their place. An honorable move that he was trying to protect the strangers, but not so honorable to turn your daughters out to the, the wild. But God still saved him, but he did not spare Sodom. Moses argued with God over destroying the Israelites in the desert. Um, and Scripture says that God repented. That does not mean that God sinned and needed to ask for forgiveness. It means God changed his mind. Uh, did God know that that was going to happen? Absolutely. Did God force Moses to argue on behalf of Israel to defend them from destruction? No. Moses did that on his own free will. Had Moses not argued, would God have destroyed Israel? I've heard different arguments on this. My take is he would have, because that's what the Scripture says. It says he would have destroyed them, but Moses argued against it. Did God know that this transaction, this conversation was going to take place, and know that Moses would argue and that God would not destroy Israel? Yes, he knew it. But causation and or uh, foreknowledge is not causation, what I'm trying to say. You know, divine counsel in Psalm 82, 1 Kings 22, the interaction with Abraham and Moses. God was not manipulated. He was not forced into any action. But he did make his decision in those instances based on the input from others. Because that is how he chooses to operate, not how he is forced to operate. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need any angel's help. But he chooses. He wants relationship. It would be a very lonely universe if you were just all-powerful and interacted with no one. Um, and God chose to create beings with free will, not beings that are robots that have to do what he says. Uh, the third part of sovereignty was having a fully controlling influence. And here's where things might, if any toes get stepped on, it might be here. Does God control every single thing that happens? In a sense... Yes, he does, because if he were to choose so, everything would cease to exist. He is all-powerful, and he could do whatever he chooses, whenever he chooses to do it. He does have that capability. But I would argue that God has given us free will, and he does not make a habit of violating our free will or the free will of anyone. Uh, every circumstance that happens is not created or promoted by God. He did not force everything that happens. Uh, what prompted this discussion tonight actually came about several months ago. Um, in a short period of time, I heard several different believers blame God for things. Um, I heard, I'm going to try and keep this very general in case they're watching or would ever see this, uh, someone that my wife and I know had a family member with cancer. And this person is a believer. The person with cancer, pretty severe cancer, is a believer. And the, the, the person started blaming themselves. Maybe God gave them cancer because I haven't prayed enough. I, they know better. They're, they're stressed out, they're worried, and they're just talking without thinking. They know better, but it came out of their mouth. So that thought is, is in there at least to some degree. Um, another person I know blamed God for taking one of their loved ones in a tragic accident. God didn't take their loved one in a tragic accident. God didn't give this person cancer. God's not punishing people because they're not praying enough. Uh, secondly, uh, something that, that kind of prompted this is I realized when you look at a lot of popular preachers and teachers out there today, in my just grouping for this purpose tonight, they fall into three categories, in, in my opinion. We have one category of, of teachers on TV, on the Internet, who they like big crowds. They want people to feel good about themselves. They want to be successful, um, and they use Scripture when it's convenient. Sometimes they even use Scripture correctly, um, but oftentimes it's out of context. 
I talk with the youth on this a lot. Like one of the best ones is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Absolutely. But what is the context of that scripture? Paul's talking about he can live with money, he can live without money, he can live with being well supplied, he can live well being poorly supplied. He can, he can survive all these conditions because of what God does. It doesn't mean that I can do anything I, I want to or choose to because of Jesus. I need to follow his will and listen to the Spirit. But we like to put that on our refrigerators and hang it on our walls and bumper stickers. It is encouraging, but we need to keep it in context. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for good. That's a real famous one, too. How come nobody ever posts up Jeremiah 29.10? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. The context of Jeremiah 29.11 is that, hey, you guys are going into captivity for 70 years, but that's not the end. I do have a good plan for you, but there's going to be some rough times in the meantime. So we need to keep our scriptures within context. That's all I'm trying to say there. God does have good plans for us. He does cause things to work together, together for us. Um, but that doesn't mean we won't have struggles and trials, sometimes because of our own doing. And I heard the pastor of a smaller church, and he's actually an author of a couple books. He said, once you start walking in the blessing of God, Satan will learn who you are and won't mess with you anymore. <laughs> really. Tell that to the apostles. Tell that to all those Christians that were martyred in the early church, tell that to the Christians who are being martyred today at unprecedented rates. My experience has been exactly the opposite. Um, on our SWAT team, when we make an entry into a house with a search warrant or something, there's usually people inside. We try not to hit or, or make entries on empty houses because we want to find the evidence that's inside, but we also want to arrest the person that's committed the crime where they're investigating. So it's best to get it all at once. And what happens, the process is a patrol officer generally gets a tip, or a detective gets a tip. A detective works up a case. We submit a, an application to the court for a search warrant. The court gives us a search warrant. The detective then goes to the SWAT team and says, hey, I want to serve this search warrant. This is what we're looking for at this address. And then the SWAT team picks when, where, how, what time, because that's their realm of expertise. Detective says, okay, I'll be there. Detective shows up, usually early in the morning, like 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. It's easiest to catch people in bed. They don't resist very much. Catch them by surprise. Um, we knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. We give a count, usually. I'm not doing anything secret here because this is all over the internet. We give a count, usually of 10 seconds. Please, search warrant, come to the door. Please, search warrant, come to the door. Knocking very loudly so much that you can see the door moving. Like, is it going to break before we're ready for it to break? But we want to have those people inside. Even though we are trying to catch them without a lot of time to prepare, we do want them to know who's there. Countdown comes down to 10 seconds. We then force entry with a ram or whatever we need to do to break that door open. And we go inside. And the people are there to greet us with open arms or whatever. <laughs> and... Every, excluding little children, every single person will go into a pair of handcuffs, be they metal handcuffs or flex handcuffs, um, like, you know, zip ties. And we, we search them quickly, and we set them on a couch or chair or somewhere like that, and we leave them alone. And then it's the detective's job to come in after the entire residence has been searched for people and clear. The detectives then come in and search for whatever evidence they're looking for, and they talk to the people involved. However... If one of those people, during that search process, the initial process, becomes unruly or very mouthy, the SWAT team will go back to them and give them the attention that they need. The SWAT, 
The SWAT team gives the people who are making the noise and causing the problem the attention. And that's how Satan works too for the most part. If, if you start walking in the blessing of God, you've gotten Satan's attention. He's going to start messing with you. The idea that, that we do have a power because of who's within us. Um, greater is he that is within me, within you, than he that's in the world. But that doesn't mean that Satan is, is scared of you and is not going to mess with you. He's going to come try and poke your buttons. He's going to try and come steal and kill and destroy. It's just part of it. So, but it's nice to hear. It's really encouraging if you don't know any better to be told, hey, as long as you're doing what the Bible says, you're not going to have any problems. Everything's going to be great. Sing these songs, come to church on Sunday morning, sing these songs, and it'd be cool. But that's not quite true. The second category of popular teachers that I'm using for tonight, um, and I've not done an official count or survey, this is just my perception, understand. Uh, but for those teachers that are out there and famous for their teaching and preaching, um, they generally fall into this camp if they're not, falling, if they're not famous because of a scandal, is what I'm trying to say. Um, they generally are Calvinist or Reformed theology. Uh, examples of this include Alistair Begg, Francis Chan, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, uh, Spurgeon, who I quote all the time. All these men are Calvinists to some degree or another. And I do not say any one of these names as an endorsement of their teaching, nor as a criticism. Let you make your own call of that. I can tell you that I have listened to all of them and learned things from all of them. Just letting you know that this is kind of what we're talking about. They are Calvinists. Um, and this is just a few. There are more. Once again, not an endorsement, not a criticism. Uh, but we need to be mindful of their Calvinist views because that will, will impact their worldview, that will impact their understanding of Scripture, um, which Calvinism, the stance is very heavy in the sovereignty of God. And it is kind of a continuum, there are extremes, but a, a, a Calvinist is going to take the view that God is more sovereign and more controlling in everyday activities and decisions than we typically would. Uh, Calvinism really specifically focuses on the doctrine of election, and that's originally what I had intended to speak on before I decided to, to make it a little more broader. Uh, while I do disagree with Calvinism, we can certainly learn, as I said, from these teachers. There's a lot of good points that we can get from them. Um, there are many great men and women of God who take that viewpoint, and I'm not trying to put that down at all. They have great attributes, and we need to learn from them. As believers, we can sometimes get trapped up in our own circle. Um, it's like going into an echo chamber where you hear yourself. Uh, we, we like to hear teaching that we agree with. We don't want to hear anything we disagree with, and we don't want to be challenged by anything. So if we just listen to the same teachers over and over and over, it's, it's really easy. Uh, as a graduate of Karis Bible College, which is Andrew Womack's Bible College, I, he's got enough teachers and enough material himself. I could easily listen and read nothing but from that circle. Um, and it's a good circle, but I'm going to be limited in what I see and what I'm exposed to. And he doesn't have a monopoly on the truth. Um, so it's good to expose ourselves and learn. You know, I'm, I'm going through a book right now by uh, R.C. Sproul, and he's one of those names. He's a Calvinist. He, he believes certain things, which I'm going to explain in a minute. So when I read that book, I come to something like, I, I don't agree with that. Well, what do I need to do? I need to go to the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? Not what does Karis Bible College, what does Pastor Kevin McMullen, or what does this person or that person, or what does R.C. Sproul, what does the Scripture say about it? And sometimes when I do that, I'm like, huh, I thought so. And other times, like, well, I need to keep looking at this because maybe I don't have an accurate understanding of this. And that's something that, that's not a preacher-teacher's job, that's everyone's job. 
Everyone's job is to examine the scriptures. It's impossible. Maybe you have a misunderstanding too. Uh, the third group that I would classify as teachers out here, um, these are the ones who aren't worried about building the biggest church they can. Uh, they probably don't have the fog machines and smoke machines and skinny jeans and all that good stuff that we like to talk about. Um, they're not into entertainment or numbers. Uh, they teach on free will and they teach what the scripture says. And those things aren't always necessarily the, the most popular topics, but I believe that is the truth. Um, I believe they're the ones that are typically hitting on all eight cylinders. I want to touch briefly on Calvinism and election because it is a major component of these viewpoints. I've spoken on TULIP before, the TULIP, the acronym that goes along with Calvinism. Pastor Kevin has taught on it as well. Um, just a refresher, total depravity. Every person is so messed up they can't possibly save themselves. Uh, unconditional election. Jesus died for people irrespective of what they did. They did nothing to deserve it. L, limited atonement. Jesus, the, the, the two, the Calvinist model would say Jesus only died for those that he chose to save. Only for those people who were elect, who were chosen before the beginning of time to be saved. There are people that aren't, according to this viewpoint. I, irresistible grace. Those people that Jesus did die for are going to be saved because they cannot resist the grace of God. They have no free choice in the matter. Um, outside of that, people that would want the grace of God... If they are not unconditionally elected, they can't get it. And then P, perseverance of the saints, meaning once saved, always saved. You can't possibly lose your salvation. If it looks like someone has lost their salvation, they never actually had it to begin with. That's just the, the general view. There are, are different branches or places on the spectrum of Calvinism where they would not believe every one of those to the same degree. But that's the general, general idea. Um, and they didn't get these ideas from thin air. There are places in Scripture that mention the elect. Paul writes about the elect quite a bit. Um, but it is my view, and I believe the view of Scripture, that God has chosen for every person to be saved. Um, it's up to them to choose. And just this morning I read an article, and I did not. Today has been crazy at work. Um, I had no free time, but I'm going to mention it because I trust the, the source of this article. I trust the scholar that wrote it. He was talking about how in the Old Testament understanding, Elect meant access to. Um, election and salvation were separate concepts. And that every Jew in Israel was elect, meaning they had access to follow the Mosaic Law, to do everything written in the Old Testament Scriptures to obtain salvation, but they had to choose to do those acts to obtain it. And he was arguing that if we take that understanding, Old Testament understanding, that the Apostle Paul would have been writing about, Paul was an Old Testament Jew who met Jesus. Then when Paul is mentioning elect, he's talking about people who have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, who has access to it? Everybody. Doesn't mean everyone's heard it, I understand that. But it was opened to everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Every person in the world has the potential to hear the gospel and to accept Jesus. So under that understanding, everyone is elect, but we still have to do the confess with our mouth, believe with our heart. That puts election in a little different light than to say that some people are chosen and some aren't. It's irrespective of their choice or, or merit or anything like that, which it's not based on merit. I, I give you that, but we have a choice in it. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. It doesn't say, for God so loved the elect that he died for some, he died for the whole world. 
For me, the biggest hindrance to the Calvinist ideas come from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which says, This is good and acceptable. And the context of that, he's talking about praying for all men and authorities. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why on earth would Paul write that God desires all men to be saved and all men to come to a knowledge of the truth if it wasn't for the purpose of all men being saved? Not the elect in meaning a specific group, every single person. God desires everybody to be saved. Paul's the one that used elect, and I think he meant to say exactly what he said. All men. I don't think it was an accident. It was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, a few verses later in verse 6, it says that he gave himself as a ransom for all. Once again, not for the elect, for all. But it, the viewpoint of Calvinism um, creates some problems as well in that if, if if there is unconditional election and irresistible grace, then why do we need to do missionary work? Why do we need to share the gospel? God's going to take care of it anyways. They don't have a choice. They're going to get saved whether you share it or not. Um, I don't know how, but that's the, if you take that understanding far enough, that's what's going to happen. Um, it can also promote tons of doubt and anxiety. Uh, many Calvinists believe that you can never truly know if you are one of the elect. You can do everything right um, and still not be one of the elect. So even though you've lived loving God, confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior and being holy or whatever you want to say, if you weren't one of the elect, then it was all for naught. Um, that would be a very miserable existence, in my opinion. Um, and that's not what Scripture teaches. It says that He is faithful to forgive us for our sins if we confess. It says all we have to do is confess and believe. Not conditional and not, uh, not wishy-washy. We don't have to doubt. Big picture, does God know exactly who will be saved and who will not be saved? Yes, He does. He's known since the beginning of time and before. But that doesn't mean that He picked who would be saved. Um, foreknowledge, once again, does not equal causation. One of the best examples I've ever heard on this uh, was if you take a toddler, two or three-year-old, and put them in a kitchen chair, and they climb up on the, the, stand up in the seat, and they're leaning over the back of the chair, and they start rocking the chair back and forth. What's going to happen? It's going to fall. You caused that. You knew it, you caused it. Obviously not. We can see what's going to happen. We are not fortune tellers. We don't see the future, but we, we know enough to know that the chair is going to fall over. Um, God does know the future, but He did not cause... God's not flipping the chair out from under you. God sees it. He knows what's going to happen, but He's not causing that to happen. He knows who will be saved and who won't be saved. He knows who will accept Jesus. He knows who will reject Jesus. But He doesn't force that. He didn't determine that ahead of time. God did not choose Hitler to be someone who would not be saved. And I just picked that as the worst name that came to mind. I probably could have picked somebody better. But, you know, it, anybody has the option to receive or to reject. God's not going to tip chairs over. He's not in the business of, of tipping chairs over. Chairs over. Um, what about Judas? Did God know that Judas was going to betray him? Absolutely. Jesus knew it. Sitting there dipping the bread. He knew who was going to betray him. doesn't mean he caused it. It was Judas's free will that did it. Right. 
There are other systems of theology that hold different viewpoints from Calvinism, um, and they have varying degrees of free will. And we're not going to get into those tonight because we would be here for six weeks and still be confused. Um, and systems are helpful for codifying ideas and beliefs, but there's a danger of becoming more devoted to one system than another. As I was looking over all this stuff, I came across uh, a story where John MacArthur, one of the most well-known Calvinists of our day, had been teaching a group of pastors. And this group of pastors was not of the Calvinist bent. And John MacArthur was arguing with them of why this was the right way to go. And this, the man who was telling the story who was there said, yeah, and that night, 200 pastors accepted John Calvin into their hearts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We need to be careful to follow what Scripture says, not what any theologian... And I'm, I'm not trying to, to knock on John Calvin or any Calvinist preacher. Once again, he had good points too. Right? Um, and I believe that we will meet him in heaven. And he may be surprised at who's there because there's free will, but... My view is that God is sovereign. He is completely sovereign in ability, um, but He's chosen, once again, to give us free will. He knows who will accept. He knows who will not, but He does not cause either one. As John uh, 12.32 says, He will draw all men unto Himself, but it's up to us individually to respond to the drawing. But a belief in God acting in complete sovereignty or not affects much more than just election, just more than salvation. I mentioned early on Hosea 4.6, perishing for lack of knowledge. We have scripture, um, we have the Old Testament, known as the Tanakh to the Jews, um, and it was accepted as we know it as scripture by them. Uh, as Christians, we use the Old Testament, we use the New Testament as scripture, and that's it. There are other books that are interesting, um, some that are history, some that are clearly kind of made up silly, probably fraudulent, um, not even what they represent to be, but whether it be a, a, an old, like the book of Maccabees, tells history. I don't know that anyone really argues what it says, but we don't place it in the place of Scripture. Right? However, um, for, for some Jewish sects, that is not completely true. They have other writings that they will, will look into, um, and some sects will elevate some of these writings to the point of Scripture nearly, or they will use them to interpret Scripture. Right? Uh, some of these are, are uh, like commentaries, and others we just say are, are pure folklore. They're just made-up stories. Um, and they vary in wi widely in beliefs. Uh, once and again, they're not widely accepted by everybody, to, to some degree or another anyways. But one of the beliefs I want to talk about comes from the Talmud which is one of those commentaries that the, the Jewish rabbis used to interpret the Tanakh. Um, and in the Talmud, it tells a story of how Adam was created, from Genesis, uh, was created in the same day and sinned in the same day that he was created. Um, as far as the source, I'm not going to get too much into this, but the Tanakh, or the, the Talmud was written in this Testament. It was written after the time of Jesus. It's not been around that long, understand? Um, and we don't know how they got it, but I do not believe it was spiritually inspired by the Holy Spirit. I do not believe it's Scripture. So the things that I'm about to tell you, understand, I'm telling you what they believe from the Talmud. I'm not telling you this is the truth. Are we clear? Youth especially, are we clear? This is not the truth. Okay, I just don't want any confusion. I'm telling you what someone else thinks thinks. Uh, God finished creating Adam in the sixth hour, 
and Adam sinned in the tenth hour of the day. And they were kicked out of the garden by the twelfth hour of the day. That was a very busy day. I thought my day at work was busy, but my goodness. Um, and one of these versions of folklore, uh, God was actually in the process of creating the demons when Adam sinned. So God had to stop his creation of the demons to go deal with Adam and Eve and their sin. And you know the story from Genesis, they were played in hide-and-seek, so he had to take some time out to go find them and fashion them clothing and kick them out of the garden. So by the time that was done, God had run out of time to go back and finish creating the bodies for the demons. So they were forever left in this understanding without bodies. They're angry. Um, they're upset. And they were created then with the purpose by God to punish and torment people on the earth. Not scripture, right? We're still on the same page. I'm telling you what these old folklores and, and beliefs would say. Not biblical at all. But some people still hold that kind of mentality. That they, they view Satan and the demons as if they were hired hands by God. When God needs something done, he hires his muscle. He brings in Satan or the demons to come do his dirty work. Um, you know, so if God wants to bless somebody, he sends an angel, a pretty angel, to go talk to him. Which, if you look at angels in Scripture, they're not quite what we have in paintings either. Uh, but, it, but if God wants to punish somebody, he, he hires Satan, he hires a demon, essentially, to go, go do that. Um, to believe something like this, we have to disregard Jesus' own teaching. Jesus was accused in Matthew chapter 12, we probably all know the story, of casting out demons using demonic power. And Jesus responded to these, I believe it was the Pharisees, he responded in Matthew 12, looking at verses 25 and 26. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You know, if Satan or the demons were out working for God, doing his dirty work, it would be counterproductive for Jesus to go out and cast out those demons or to counteract the works that they have done. Uh, I heard somebody ask once, if you punch yourself and it hurts, are you really strong or are you a wimp? Either way, you're opposing yourself and it's just not real bright. <laughs> I've not tried it. Um, and I don't know what my conclusion would be, so I'm not going to try it. I don't want to be a wimp. I'd rather be really strong. By the way, I went to the gym yesterday, which I don't go to the gym ever, but uh, the city has instituted a new health and wellness policy that's voluntary. Um, but if we don't volunteer to do it, then our insurance premium goes up by $30. Uh, but it's voluntary. So I went to the gym because there are only certain ways to, to earn the points you need. So if I fall down up here, it's muscle soreness, probably not the spirit, but come help me up anyways. I'm not real strong yet. Think of the woman that was healed of being bent over for 18 years. 18 years, she's stuck, stooped over. Can't look up, can't walk comfortably. That would be miserable. It's in Luke 13, chapter, or verse 16. Jesus said, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, so she was one of Abraham's children, so to speak. That speaks of Jesus' opinion of her, her, his view of her. Whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Of course, the Pharisees were upset. Once again, Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath day. How dare he do good on the day they're not supposed to do anything? Um, 
but he says she's a daughter of Abraham, and he blames Satan for her physical condition. He doesn't say this woman who the father has bound over for 18 years to teach her a lesson because she didn't pray enough, or she didn't do this, or she didn't do that, or she's too proud, so she needs to be bent over and taught a lesson. No, he blamed it straight on Satan. And then 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and that's exactly what he did. He stood that woman back up straight. He healed her. You know, John 10.10, 10, I, I preach from it, it seems like all the time, says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The works of Satan are in exact opposition to Jesus, who died to save us. It was by Jesus' stripes that we're healed. He came to give us an abundance. As I said at the beginning of, of service, opening up, Jehovah Jireh, he is still our provider. Um, I think of when Moses... When the, the Israelites were stuck in, in, the, uh, in the desert, not stuck, you know, they're, they're wandering around for 40 years, and they need water. So they have, Moses raises a staff, hits the rock, the rock splits, and they have water for days. Um, it's pretty cool if you actually look into that. There's a, a rock, um, I want to say it's in Turkey, that it's this giant rock, looks like a leaf standing up, and it's split straight down the middle. Um, I want to say it's like 40, 50 foot tall, and there is just oodles, how's that for a word, oodles of water erosion all over this rock in the desert, a place where it doesn't rain. Am I saying that that's the rock that Moses hit? I don't know, um, but there's a lot of people that believe that is the rock that Moses struck with a staff. It's there, you can see it. Um, that's pretty cool. But God didn't just make a little stream that you know they could fill up their canteen once. They had so much water that you see water erosion from it today. For the manna, he didn't just give them just enough. They had enough so that they were well fed. There was no disease. There weren't people malnourished. They had the, oh, what are the birds? Quail, quail. thank you. I was thinking pheasants. They had quail meat. Um, of course, the people still complained about it all, but God provided enough for them to have. Um, he, is, he is the God of enough and then some. Amen. Not lack. He is the one that provides health. Uh, I can't remember, this isn't my notes, but one of the Psalms talks about how when all those Israelites left Egypt from a lifetime of slavery, hard work, malnourishment, it says no one was sick, no one was feeble, no one was weak when they went out. And they wandered around the desert for 40 years, and aside from when they complained and were bitten by the serpents that, that were sent, um, they didn't have to deal with issues like that. God of more than enough, God of provision, God of health, God of blessing, God of peace, not of anxiety. But a view that says God acts in his sovereignty in all things creates bad beliefs. Um, these beliefs can be a result of uh, that God genuinely does make everything happen. You know, some people think he even controls when you blink, when you don't blink. Uh, that's pretty extreme, but there are people that, that would think that way. Sometimes bad beliefs come from bad teaching as a result of misunderstanding Scripture. Um, I heard, I will not say a name at all with this one, but I heard of someone teaching that the Scripture where it talks about being unequally yoked referred to interracial marriage. Don't be unequally yoked means don't marry someone of, an op, of a, a different race than you. Well, that's funny because it, it clearly talks about what does a believer have to do with an unbeliever in the context. It's right there in the sentence. Um, but if, if you come in with um, a preconceived notion or something you want to prove, or if you just don't understand what it's saying, you can have a bad belief. 
sometimes it's also more comfortable to hold on to these wrong beliefs. Um, if I hold that God is sovereign in all things, then I don't have any responsibility. It's his choice, not mine. I don't need to feel guilt. I don't need to feel responsibility. I don't need to try. I don't need to make any effort. Once again, if, if God chooses who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, then why do I need to share my faith with anybody? Because it's God's choice to begin with. Um, if it's God's will for someone to be sick, who am I to oppose him? Why would I pray for someone that's sick and believe they're going to be healed when I'm opposing the very will of God, if that were true? It shifts the blame for things from us to God. I told Neil I was going to not walk around, but I just realized I've been kind of pacing a little bit. Sorry, Neil. <sighs> it's okay. It's not correct to blame God, but that's what happens. You know, recently, I, I'm going to walk again, Neil. I like to come over here when I get to tell a story. Um, I, uh, several months ago, I had to investigate a, a natural death at work. A, a lady passed away in her sleep. Um, she was in her late 30s, and there were several family members that came over um, to the house. And one of the gentlemen that was there, he was a, a friend of hers, sat down on the couch, and he had just his hands in his head for a few minutes. And all of a sudden, like enough to make you jump out of your skin, he like tilts his head up, and he like almost shouts, God, why did you take her, Jesus? Well, he's upset, I understand that. But looking at the picture... Um, she was, you know, lower middle-aged, I'll give you that. She was fairly overweight. Um, she had several health problems. She was actively involved in witchcraft, and she was using various substances not prescribed by a doctor. Um, so blaming God would not be my first go-to in that instance. She had a, a lot of factors going on, natural and supernatural. Not trying to put her down or him down, but God didn't take the woman. Right? He didn't. Many Christians and non-Christians who acknowledge God believe that God uses sickness to teach us things. Which one of you in here would give your kid cancer to teach them something? I, that's pretty severe, I realize that. What about just breaking their finger? Would you break your kid's little finger, just a little crack to teach them something. No, that's absurd. So why would we think that God would, would place sickness to teach somebody something? Does he have no other options? He's, he's run out of it, so you know, it's time for something. Let, let me think, what creative disease can I give you that will cause you to learn whatever you need to learn? Uh, in Luke 11, verse 11 through 13, Jesus talks about how if a natural parent, if, if a son asks for a fish, you don't hand him a snake. Um, if he asks for an egg, you don't hand him a scorpion. I'm not sure how you get those two correlations, but either way, I don't want a scorpion or a snake. Um, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Heavenly Father? Um, and a lot of people use that verse to support receiving the Holy Spirit. You ask for, for the Holy Spirit, He knows how to good gifts, and He will, will, will give you that good gift. But it, it just... He's a, a giver of good, not a giver of, of evil. And sickness is evil. Jesus died on the cross partially to provide healing from illness. Amen. Saying God gives sickness is, in my opinion, it's character assassination of God. Right? It's going back to what we talked about last week, slander. We are slandering God. Can somebody learn from sickness? 
absolutely. Uh, I've had people tell me that they, they had one viewpoint on sickness, and then they had to deal with it themselves. And after dealing with it themselves and not getting the results they were hoping to see, um, they had a better understanding and a better compassion for, for people in that same position. Did God put them into that position so they could learn that? Absolutely not. Um, but as one politician likes to say, never let a good tragedy or tragedy go to waste or whatever it says, you know, God can take anything and turn it to good. God doesn't give the sickness, but if we allow, we can still gain from it. Does God use tragedy to kill, or to, to kill people? Does God use tragedy to kill people? No, he does not. Does, does he use tragedy to teach us things? No, but once again, we can learn through those things. We can learn from tragedy. It's not the best way. It's not the most fun way. It's not God's favorite way or his favorite way or his promoted way or his choice or his doing. But when those things happen, he can still teach us. Can God turn someone's life completely around because of an illness or a tragedy? Yes, and I'm sure many of us know people who have been in that situation. A lot of people come to God when they are at their lowest of the lows. Doesn't mean God put them at the lowest of the lows, but that's where they were willing to receive that grace that was reaching out to them. Does God send it? Absolutely not. If someone takes a view that sickness is from God, then they would be, as I said, out of their mind to believe for healing or to resist that sickness. Um, we need to recognize that the sickness is from, from Satan, from the devil, from the enemy. We're not fighting against God when we fight sickness. We're fighting against the enemy when we fight sickness. He doesn't send sickness as a teacher. And God does not come and take people home early. Uh, when a child dies, tragically and, and early, which any child dying is tragic and early, um, it's not because God needed an angel in heaven. People say things like that to comfort people, but it's a whole bunch of baloney. We don't turn into angels when we die. Whether you die as a, an infant, as a toddler, a teenager, an adult, an elderly person, you will not turn into an angel. Um, you will not be given a harp. You will not get wings, to my knowledge. Um, maybe if you want to play the harp, he can let you have one, but we're not all going to be assigned harps and floating around on clouds like we see in the cartoons. Happens to Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny all the time. Something happens, and next thing you know, they're on the cloud floating by, held up with balloons sometimes. Uh, that's not what happens. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? We are a different class of being than the angels. I'm not going to turn into them. Uh, God doesn't need to take adults early either. And I can picture this. is, is like God sitting on his throne, and in comes one of the angels. This is, God, this is so unexpected. John resigned his position as heavenly snowplow driver. Who's going to get the snow off the roads for someone that wants snow in heaven? I'll take it. God's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I need a new snowplow driver for the heavenly snowplow. I know, I'll kill that John. Then I don't even have to make a new name tag. We can just bring him up early, and he can take over driving the snowplow. Such a stupid example, I realized that. But it's stupid to think that God needs help in heaven. God took him early because he needed another angel, or he needed heaven more than we need him here. No, God has no need to get anyone to heaven early. The only way I want to go to heaven early if it's like Enoch. I, you know, I, otherwise, no, I don't want to be so old that I can't move in a vegetable or anything like that either, but I don't want to go early. When anyone, a believer or an unbeliever, a child or an adult, they get sick, they get injured, they die what we would call early, 
Um, it's either the result of a sinful nature of the world, it's an enemy attack, human mistake, in some cases it's stupidity. I see these videos of people, um, they're really popular in Eastern Europe and Russia where they are climbing like the radio towers and the cell phone towers and all this stuff and they get up at the very top and then they're like hang by one arm. Like, no, I, my heart starts like just looking at the video and I'm sitting in my couch. If that person slips and falls, which they sometimes do, wasn't God's doing, believe it or not, that wasn't the enemy either. That was just gravity and stupidity. If they want to do that, more power to them, but um, don't blame God and, and don't even blame the devil on that one. That was their, their lack of sense, perhaps. Uh, if someone dies as a result of a speeding driver causing an accident, God didn't cause the accident. We don't need to blame the devil either. That was a human mistake, human error. It was an accident. Um, the speeding driver is the one to blame, if anything, for what happened. But we, we sometimes accuse things of God, or accuse God of things that he had nothing to do with. And sometimes we give Satan too much credit too. Right? Things happen for a reason. Yep. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's, it's fallen nature of the world. Sometimes it's a mistake. And sometimes it's stupidness. Um, if I can have the musicians go ahead and come up, I will start winding it down. Pastor uses all the illustrations about being a pilot. Of course, I'm not a pilot, but that's what I was thinking when Levi was motioning me in. I thought, ah, it's like he's guiding me in for a landing. We're going to take this in for a landing. We've all heard someone say, if it's meant to be, it will be. God will close or open doors. Sometimes you hear people praying, God, if this is what's supposed to happen, open the doors. God, if this is not what's supposed to happen, I pray that you close the doors. Well, I, I kind of get what's being said there. Um, or if God opens or closes one door, he'll open another. If God closes a door, he'll open a window. I got bad news because God's not the only one that can open and close windows. He's not the only one that can open and close doors. Uh, the idea that if something is God's will, it will happen. And if it's not, he won't allow it to happen is extremely dangerous. Uh, think about Ishmael. Ishmael was not God's idea. That was Sarah's idea. And when she suggested it to Abraham... Abraham did not protest, obviously, um, but it wasn't God's idea. And look at all the problems it's caused up to this very day. An open door does not mean it's God's will. And the enemy very, may very well close a door trying to stop God's will from happening. He will try and stop and hinder you. When you encounter resistance, it doesn't mean it's God saying, no, that's not my will. It might mean the enemy is attacking. And just because you encounter no resistance doesn't mean it's God's will. It may be the enemy saying, come right in, please. Right? So we need to, to not just go willy-nilly with that. So what are we to do? We acknowledge that God is in fact fully God. He's in control, but He's given us free will and He's given us responsibilities. James 4, 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you start getting symptoms or a bad word from the doctor, don't think, well, God's teaching me something. What can I learn from this? Well, yeah, what can you learn, if anything? But you need to resist the devil. You need to remember that Jesus died on the cross for that sickness the doctor just diagnosed you with, and you need to believe for healing and resist it. Uh, it's from the devil every single time. James 5:14 and 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they will pray for him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. 
If God made someone sick, why would we go to the elders and ask for anointing of oil and, and prayer for healing? Sickness is not from God. And I say that over and over and over and over because we need to hear it over and over and over. God is not the author of bad. Luke 10, 8 and 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples before he sends them out. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God comes near because you and I bring it with us. And the purpose of that kingdom is to bring freedom and release and to destroy the works of the devil. We have the power that talks about in Acts 1.8, the power of the Holy Spirit to be the witness for God. As a believer, you belong to Jesus, right? You belong in the family of God. You need to know whose you are. You need to know who you are in him. And then when the enemy comes, you don't blame God. You submit to God. You resist the devil. And he has to flee. May not be without a fight. He may stick around and try and test you and may push your buttons, but he has to flee. And all of this starts and ends with knowing God and knowing his character. And if you believe that God is out there putting sickness and, and bad things on people, then you're not going to resist him. And you are having a severe misunderstanding of who God is. We blame things, God for things that he had nothing to do with. He's given us authority. He gave Adam and Eve authority. He gave them dominion in the garden. Adam and Eve goofed it up. But Jesus came back to restore, to repurchase that authority and dominion and has given it back to us. We have to, within the guidance of the, the Word and of the Holy Spirit, exercise our authority. We resist the devil. We don't blame God. We resist the devil and, and enact what he's given us to do. So if you don't know Jesus right now, I want to invite you. Anyone here, I don't think, but anyone watching. Um, if you don't know Jesus, now is as good a time as any and a better time than tomorrow to receive him right now. To believe that Jesus died for your sins, that all you need to do is confess them, ask him to be Lord of your life. You can ask him to come into your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to be King of my life. And that's all that it takes. And then get you a Bible, get in a church, and do exactly what it says and live for him and have a relationship with him every day. And if you have been one of these people that blames God for things. He's not mad at you. Uh, if you said something about me that was false, I would be upset. But we have a loving and forgiving God and he's not upset. And he wants to forgive you and have continued relationship with you in that. So that's all we need to do. Have an understanding of who God is and what his character is. We hope this message has been a great blessing to you and has helped build your faith in Jesus. We encourage you to visit our app Independence Christian Center on your cell phone available from the Apple App Store or Android, Google Play. You can also find us on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, YouTube, and Facebook, again under Independence Christian Center or at our website, iccfamily, all one word, dot org, iccfamily.org. Our heart's desire here is to labor with the Lord in building His body. Until next time, may God's very best be yours.